0: I've been preaching for a little over five years now of the seven years I've worked here. And my goal has always been to challenge you when you need to grow and to encourage you when you need encouraging. A little tip on how my mind works, I'm pretty sure that all of us constantly need both of those things, encouragement and challenge, and that's still my goal tonight. Um, So you and I can't even keep our hearts pumping blood without Jesus making it happen, so how much less can I actually preach this well in a way that's full of... Truth and love without His help. So let's take a minute to ask Him for it. Holy Spirit, you are amazing. Jesus, thank you so much for coming to save us. Thank you for saving us from sin. Thank you for saving us from fear. Lord, um, we are so grateful for your word written down in the pages of Scripture. Please open those up to us tonight in a way that we can internalized that. Please just burn that into our minds and our hearts in ways that make us stronger and more like you. Um, we love you. Amen. So I know we have a pretty good representation of gamers in the community. Uh, has anybody heard of the video game Undertale? Anybody? My wife. Oh, and no. Sweet. Um, so I haven't played it yet, but I want to. Uh, Undertale, for those of you who don't know, which is apparently all of you except Noah, um, is this uh, indie 8-bit RPG that was released in 2015, and it's all about choice. Uh, For example, you can fight every monster that you come into contact with, which is basically how you get through RPG video games generally, uh, or you can reason with or trick or show mercy to every monster that you meet. And it's actually possible to get through the entire game without killing a single living being pretty unusual. One of the most intriguing parts of this game is it's all about choices having consequences, to the extreme that there are certain consequences that you cannot undo by resetting the game. Um, These consequences follow you no matter how many new games you start. This is a little unsettling for us, because we're not used to that. Games are trivial, games don't have consequences that you can't reset. But this game is a lot like life. See, in life, we want to know that we're not about to make the wrong choice. We want to know we're not missing something or uh, giving up something that we can't get back, that we're not walking into an ambush or down a bad path. But not only can we not reset things when we mess up in the real world, as sweet as that would be, we also don't have step-by-step walkthroughs for the real world like there often are for video games. And, yeah, we have the Word of God, and that is an incredible gift for which I am very grateful. Um, And a lot of Bibles you can pick up, you know, study Bibles or something. will have a lot of notes there helping you explain things, helping you to apply things. Um, I've got this three-and-a-half-inch study Bible um, that is just a brick. It's so big I can't find a cover for it. It's kind of absurd. Um, But even in that one... I have never opened up a Bible and found a complete step-by-step flowchart of all the decisions that Adam P. Skinner will have over the next five years, sweet as that would be. Um, There is no map for our individual lives, at least that we get to see. And it's this existential concern that we have to come to terms with, the fact that uncertainty, and with that a measure of fear, is part of being human. There are some ways in which I am jealous of God, and this is one of them. Uh, The whole foreknowledge thing, you know, omniscience, knowing everything present and future, never having a fork in the road that he can't see all the way down both paths of from right where he's standing. I want that. That's awesome. Uh, Because we don't have that, but we want it. You know, for example... I want to know, well, when I register for this class instead of the other one that I could have taken, is it just going to suck for 15 weeks? Because it might. It's happened before. Um, You know, I might end up with a terrible adjunct professor when I could have had one that I know is awesome. Or I could go with that professor that I love, but then realize a little while into it that the 8 a.m. meeting time was not worth the cost. Uh, Hint, if we're talking about me, the 8 a.m. meeting time is never worth the cost. Mornings are hard. But I don't get to know the consequences of a path that I choose until I'm already walking down that path. I can scout it out a little bit. I can ask other people, make an educated guess, sure. But ultimately, I can't know until I'm in it. None of us can. This gets a lot messier with gray area choices. Uh, I mean, some things are actually pretty black and white, (laughs) and I love that. Um, that's my personality. I really like having things clear, uh, laid out for me. My sermon notes are typed, and I brought them up in a folder. That tells you most of what you need to know about me on this score. Um, and sometimes we get that. You know, if if there's two paths, and path A has something where, you know, that the Word of God clearly calls sin and path B doesn't, then congratulations, you got one of the easy choices. Um, you know, it might not be easy to walk down the right path. I get that but at least it's a lot easier to recognize the right path. And to be fair, we're faced with more black-and-white, sin-versus-not-sin choices daily than we probably recognize. But there are so many choices we're faced with where neither path is sin, where neither or none of the many options ahead of us are obviously evil or harmful or unloving. You know, maybe they all have pros and cons. They all could potentially glorify God. So how do you choose? I don't know whether it's more accurate to say that I'm bad at this or to say I'm so good at this that it's bad for me. Uh, The way God built me, as mentioned, I am an overwhelmingly analytical, logical, think-three-steps-ahead-on-a-decision-tree type of thinker. And overall, I really like that. That's working out pretty well for me. That allows me to make most big decisions in my life carefully and wisely, and God is glorified by that. But the problem, for me, comes when it's time to stop creating mental maps and flowcharts and pros and cons lists and actually get to the part about choosing one best decision and then eliminating all the others. That's hard for me. I know not everybody's mind is wired like mine, and frankly, that's great. It'd be a little weird if all of us were like me. I mean, weirder than we already are. But I I suspect that a lot of you can still really connect with this. I heard a quote a while back about the generation that most of Scum is part of. And they said, We are a generation obsessed with choice and terrified of choosing. It's an existential truth that choosing one option means losing all the paths that we didn't choose. Choice is loss. And we're afraid of that. We like keeping our options open, is the phrase we like to euphemistically apply. We can convince ourselves that way that we aren't losing anything by making a choice. But when we do that, we're losing all of the things by not entering into any of them, not really entering into life. Life is making decisions and committing to them. I mean, that's how it was for those of us in this room who are Christians when we made that decision to follow Jesus and to commit to that path. Fortunately, if you are a Christian, you've been given the Holy Spirit, and he can help us as we move through the gray area decisions in our lives. The Word of God, the Bible, that can help us to make gray area decisions wisely. And as we'll see tonight, I hope, God's Word also gives us peace as we wade through the decision paralysis and move forward in faith, just as I have in the months leading up to tonight. So, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Uh, We're looking at most of a 28-verse passage tonight, because I'm greedy. Um, If you want to be really cynical about it, you could just say, oh, he just didn't want to make a choice on narrowing it down, so he chose all of them, millennial. Uh, And you might be right. Uh, We're going to start in verse 12, which will be up on the screen if you don't have a paper or phone Bible you'd prefer to use. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation... But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Cool. Closing prayer. Um, this is this is how we wish most of our decisions worked, right? Or at least I do. You know, clear-cut sin versus not sin, easy. Um, It's all about saying no to sin, the misdeeds of the body in this translation, uh, and saying yes to righteousness. But that's another sermon. Uh, Actually, that's another infinite number of sermons. But we want to go into the gray area, so let's keep moving forward. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba father the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are god's children now if we are children then we are heirs heirs of god and co-heirs with christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory so we aren't meant to live in fear but we are told that we're going to suffer if at this stage in your walk you are afraid of suffering, this is going to sound pretty weird. And what kind of sufferings is Paul talking about? I think there's a pretty wide range of things for that. And some of this is overt persecution. I mean, Jesus was brutally murdered for his faithfulness to our Father, and we could be too. That still happens today. Some of it is. Uh, just subtle pushback from friends, enemies, coworkers, biological family members for taking a stand for Jesus and refusing to compromise. Some of it may just be anxiety and discomfort, the uncertainty of going against the grain of the world, maybe rejecting the American dream of status and consumerism, for example, and having nothing to talk about at the family reunions when everybody's talking about their timeshares. Or maybe it's becoming an unofficial, unpaid missionary at punk shows. Or maybe it's giving up an excellent Central Denver pastoral job that you love. And maybe the career that goes with it, because you are convicted in the Spirit that it's the move to make. There will be pain, and there will be uncertainty, and that's scary, and that hurts. And Scripture tells us none of those things are signs that something has gone wrong. I mean, in Matthew 11 and Luke 7, John the Baptist, of all people, was in doubt about whether the Messiah he put his trust in and put his literal neck on the line for was the right guy or not. John the Baptist, if he can doubt, you can doubt. And you can persevere through that doubt as he did in faith. I don't want the sermon to be all about me, but I certainly feel this right now because I am a black and white thinker making a gray decision the decision to end this job and leave this place was so hard because it was a gray area decision and I'm bad at those I was paralyzed because of the lack of clarity in the why and in the what happens next and I wish I knew God hasn't told me that part yet the good things that he's bringing me into, I haven't seen a lot of specifics on that. I can see only two things clearly right now, and one of them is that this is a decision that I need to make. And the other thing that I can see clearly is what I'm losing. I've shed a lot of tears wrestling through this. I've, I've lost sleep struggling with the Subconscious denial of my fears about uncertainty and change, wanting to believe that those weren't there and that this was all hunky-dory, and I was a hundred percent certain, you know, as if it was a black and white decision where I could be. We want so much for our decisions to be clear-cut. We want so much to know that we're not making a mistake. I don't want to minimize the tangible and very real life and death suffering that our persecuted brothers and sisters experience today in the Middle East and China and North Africa, all over the place. But the heart twisting anxiety that we experience in the uncertainty of our hard decisions and facing the loss that could follow them, this too is suffering. Listen to, listen to Paul's words in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And let's skip to verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We hope in what we cannot see. And there is so much we cannot see. God can. But not you, not me. God has Total knowledge of the future and total control, total sovereignty. If I were to go down a bunny trail on Calvinism, Arminianism, and Molinism, this is the part in the sermon where I would do that. Uh, I think it's really cool, but it adds nothing to the sermon, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, The relevant information is this God is in control in ways that we can't even fathom. He has a plan, even when we aren't certain about our next steps. And he's with us in the gray. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I want to take a minute to let that sink in. God is praying for you. God. Do you realize that? That the Holy Spirit, who is God, is engaged in intercessory prayer for you before the throne of God the Father? And later in verse 34, we'll see, so is God the Son, Jesus. Two-thirds of the Trinity are on your prayer team. Do you realize how crazy that is? How great the unearned gift that is. What it means to know that you are never alone and never without somebody in your corner. And that the God who kindled life in the universe is standing in for you before the author of all things. That is so encouraging to me. Praying for someone is an act of helping and an act of love. And God is engaged in that for you constantly because that's how much he loves you. Another encouraging thing is the fact that our weakness is not a disqualifier for following God's path for us. I looked up that phrase in verse 26, our weakness, because it seemed seems sort of vague to me. And from what I found in the commentaries, Here it means the limits of being embodied, finite humans weighed down by our sin and by just the way things are living on the planet Earth. We are very, very small. There's so much we can't do. And there's so much that we can't know. This verse talks about not knowing what to pray for. (laughs) Ever been there? Yeah, I, I've been there, like, I don't know, maybe every day of my life. Um, I, I don't know what's best. I'm not the Lord. When we tell God, your will be done, I tend to think it's because we usually don't know what that is. Not with 100% certainty. I'll give you some examples. Like, is it God's will that two friends of yours in a pretty unhealthy dating relationship get healthier by working through it or get healthier by breaking up? Is it God's will that an aging grandparent be healed here on earth or be healed in heaven? Should you take this job or that job? Should you marry this Christian or that Christian? I don't know. And a lot of the time, I don't know what to pray for for myself. But the Holy Spirit, the advocate, is praying for us, even in the midst of our weakness, our spiritual cataracts, our inability to see what path we're supposed to take. And so we wait patiently, wrestling honestly in the presence of God and His other kids. But still, what if we have multiple gray area paths and we pick the wrong one, or we don't pick the best one? What then? I've had to ponder this a lot lately because I'm a black and white thinker making a gray decision. And I was frozen. I couldn't move forward on any path without God helping me gather momentum to break out of my decision paralysis without trusting in him. And yeah, there was some stuff he told me through brothers and sisters in Christ, there was some stuff he told me through prayer, but ultimately to actually get to a decision, I had to trust And I had to hold on to the promise that we see in verse 28, which, for me, is the core of this passage. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is one of my favorite passages. Maybe it's one of yours too. It's a very popular verse because it tells us something that our hearts desperately need to hear. That if you love God, then in all things he is working for your good. And that means in all things. When you're on the best path, when you're on the good path, when you're on the barely mediocre path, when you don't feel like you're on a path at all, and calamity strikes and tears your life to pieces, and you know nothing but loss, and there is no word for what has happened to you but evil, God is still working for your good. And what is that good according to verse 29? Becoming more like Jesus. To his glory and joy forever and to your glory and joy forever starting in this lifetime. If life gives you lemons, God can make lemonade. And if the enemy gives you demons, God can make demonade. I don't know what that is. And I'm not putting it in my mouth. I think it would upset my stomach, and there's not enough Tums in the world to make me do that. But the point of this terrifically awkward pun is that there is no situation so bad that God cannot squeeze some goodness out of it. It's all going to be used for good for God's people, for those who love him. I want to emphasize, in order to correct uh, an assumption that sometimes people get from this passage that I don't think is there, this is not the same thing as saying that bad things are somehow magically good now. They're not. Evil is still evil. Bad is still bad. And tragedy is still tragedy. I don't want to live in delusion and just pretend that none of that is real, and I don't want you to either. Some of you might remember a sermon I did in August with uh, the title, Life is Awful! Rejoice! And... Um, Life is awful sometimes. There's a lot of awful to go around out there. We're not rejoicing because things are all unicorns and rainbows. We're rejoicing because in the darkest valley, in the shadow of death, God is still with you, working out his good and beautiful plans that will not be snuffed out by the darkness around us. I also don't want to skip over the part in verses 29 and 30 when it says God predestined our paths. Again, the Calvinism, Arminianism, Molinism, bunny trail is real tempting for a theology nerd like me, but the takeaway is that God not only knows what lies down all of your potential paths, he's guiding you in unseen ways down the one he already knows he's going to use to draw you to himself through Jesus. Jesus. At the risk of oversimplifying this, we can't lose. I mean, think about it. If God's promise is that if we continue to love him, which as Jesus explained in John 14, includes trying to obey him, then everything we do will be used by God for good the way he defines good. Worst case scenario. You try to love Jesus well and obey him faithfully, and you make mistakes despite your best efforts. And God still uses those mistakes to make you increasingly holy, increasingly transformed to be like Jesus and less like this hopeless world. And it's not a matter of doing it right, as imperfectly, which you cannot do. And it's not even a matter of doing it well enough, as in loving Jesus enough or eliminating enough sin that God will step down and use your situation for good. The message of the gospel is that we can't be good enough. That's why we need a Savior. Only perfect holiness, perfect fidelity to God's plan to make the world better makes the world better. Go figure. And no one in this room or on this planet has that. But Jesus does. Just abide in him, love him, trust him, and obey him to the best of your ability. And then just trust his promises, like this one. We can keep hoping in what we cannot see, because God can see it. We have hope. We are indisputably, unconditionally, irresistibly, on his team and on his good path as long as we love him and keep moving forward in faith. And because of that, what shall we fear with a God who loves us that much and is that good at accomplishing his beautiful plans in our lives? I'm a black and white thinker in a gray area church there is a wind of change blowing through the doors of scum. Can you feel it? And I'm not just talking about me leaving. That's actually one of the smaller parts. God is doing huge things here to bring this community to maturity, to bring us to the fullness of his plans for us. He's working out his plan for Scum of the Earth Church, one small, precious, and much beloved part of the church. So much of this community's life together is in gray areas, shifting, amorphous, hard to pin down. And that's true especially here, and it's true especially now, I think. Things are changing. Be not afraid, because if God is faithful, and he is, He will guide each and every one of us to the goodness and satisfaction of being like Jesus more and more each day. Be faithful and be confident because of the assurance that we have in this passage. Let's go to verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? don't let your eyes skip over the significance of this. God is for you. And not in the way that you hear, for example, congressmen saying that they are for this group or that cause, or the way people say things like, I'm for gun control or I'm for strong borders, which mostly means trite bumper stickers, nasty Facebook posts, and dropping a ballot in a box one day out of every two to four years. God being for you. If you are a child of his, it means he is actively working for your good every day. In some ways you can see, in some ways you can't yet. Do you believe this? Are you willing to live like you believe this? Let's go on to verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I looked this one up too, all things, kind of a vague phrase. And in this case, it means both our final glory and maturity and everything necessary to achieve it, things that God provides to bring us to the fullness that he has for us. If, and if we have the Spirit of Christ riding shotgun in our hearts, minds, and bodies every day, we have everything we need. You can't possibly be unprepared with a traveling companion, as capable as God is. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is both acknowledging the real danger of getting executed for his faith, and at the same time he is belittling the power of that oh-so-limited sword. It can separate his head from his body, but it cannot separate him from the love of God. In faith, even dying still means you win. How much less able to derail us or separate us from God is a decision, perhaps a less-than-perfect one, made in faith. Verse 37. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ or his sovereignty over every circumstance, not even our faithfully made gray area decisions. Not our mistakes, not our good decisions that we may never get to know whether they were the best decision. Nothing can separate us from our Father in heaven whose name is holy and whose will will be done on earth whose kingdom will advance in our hearts every time we make a decision in boldness and faith, seeking to glorify our King in every circumstance, no matter how black and white, and no matter how gray. Family in Christ, I am a black and white thinker whose gray decision about next steps is washed red in the blood of the One who died to set us free to live in Him, unafraid. And I'm about 95% sure I'd say, This decision is a good one, but even if I'm wrong, I can march forward unafraid in the knowledge that God will bring good out of it, now and forever. And that same peace is available to every one of you in Christ. One last time, for now anyway, let me impart some thrice lyrics. From their song, The Long Defeat, which gets its title from the theology of Tolkien. Still, I believe there's a thread through the thorns, and I believe that somewhere it's warm, and I believe that it's ever bright beyond this black. Still, I believe there's a word in the wire, and I believe there's a way through the fire, and I believe there's a joy that blooms beyond these walls. So keep holding on to hope without assurance. And we don't have assurance in the sense of 100% certainty about the outcome of each one of our gray area choices, but we have total assurance that God will take everything we do in faith and faithfulness to make something beautiful of our lives. The Lord is with you, scum of the earth. He goes before you into this season of growth and change. He will be with you in the valley and all of its uncertainty, and he will be with you in peace and abundance, for there is nothing that can separate you from his love. I don't think I've ever done something like this in a sermon, but I want to give you guys a really tangible way to take this truth from Scripture and run with it. Uh, When you sat down, you probably found some pieces of uh, scrap paper and a pen or pencil on your seat. Um, Should be some extra no cards back at the scuba. It's on the info table back there if you don't have one with you. Um, I'm going to hold a few minutes of silence after this, and if you're willing, I want you to use that time to write down a prayer to God about an area of uncertainty in your life. Maybe it's a decision that you're in the process of making now. Maybe it's a gray area down the road that you can see coming, or Maybe it's an area of uncertainty or anxiety that you're not sure is ever going to change. Bring that to God. Write down a prayer to him about that, just like you're writing him a letter. And I want to encourage you in that to decide to commit to faithfully seeking God's will and to commit to keep faithfully moving forward, trusting that if what you do is done out of faith and love for God, he will use it for good. I want you to keep that paper. Look back at it when you need a reminder that God is for you, working in all things and in the specific thing that you're writing down tonight for your good. Let this be a way to look back later and to see how God has worked in your life in the seasons of uncertainty and fear, how he's never left your side. Let's take a few minutes for that now in silence and then I'll come up and finish out this part of the service. If you're still writing, if you need more time, take it. It is more important by far to be in communication with God than it is to listen to me. We're going to take communion now. All who bear the name Christians are welcome to tear off the bread or the gluten-free cracker and dip it in the juice. We do this in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus, through whom we have been set free from sin and from fear if you choose to live under his sovereignty, the reign of our king, if you choose into that kind of freedom to live fully unafraid because of him, then come and partake.